Welcome to Harvest Beyond Sunday, a podcast that seeks to equip and inform the members of Harvest Church. My name is Jamie Trussell. I the privilege of being a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church, and we are in week 10 of our uh, path 10, this gospel journey in the Old Testament, and joined again this week by a fellow pastor and elder, Steve Winstead. Steve, good morning. Uh, good to be back here with you, Jamie. Well, we have reached the end of this gospel journey pathway, week 10, and this introducing ourselves to the Old Testament and some of its major themes. We've certainly walked through a lot, uh, covered a lot of ground, obviously at about 30,000, maybe 60,000 feet sometimes it feels like, and we ended last time with the idea that, yes, Assyria was going to take the northern kingdom, yet hope was going to come. Uh, since then, you know, Babylon comes, takes the southern kingdom, and God's people are in captivity. Yeah, and you're going to see uh, a succession of uh, different nations taking over. So you see Babylon take over Assyria, and when they do, some of those Jewish people from the north are carried back to Babylon, and then we're going to see the Persian king, Um, The Medo-Persians take over afterwards, and God had told his people that there'd be a time of 70 uh, years that they would be carried away, and God, uh, in his sovereignty, times it perfectly. I mean, this is is just once you look back and you go, the hand of God to do that from when the people were first carried off, like they were carried off in three waves to Babylon in 605 and 594 and in uh, 586. And they come back in waves, the first wave coming back exactly 70 years later in, um, in, uh, four, in 535, we see that wave come back. And they come back under uh, this guy in Ezra named uh, Zerubbabel. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a unique guy, but he comes back and he has an objective. He's sent by Cyrus and he's sent to to do something magnificent. He's going to build the temple. Mm-hmm. And the temple had been destroyed by Babylon. Uh, everything's carried off. So he's going to go back and build the place where God's presence will dwell most heavily in this unique way um, because they're going to come back as a nation is, is, is the hope and the plan. Yet when they start building the temple, uh, just like so many things, the people become easily distracted mm. and they get consumed I mean, if this is an analogy for people of our day, they get caught up building their own homes mm-hmm. and forget to build the house of, of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to talk about a, a message that can preach right there, how often are we getting so caught up in our own homes, in our own world? When I say homes, I'm not, I mean, they're talking fizzle here, but I, we can go well sure, beyond make that. that. an analogy, yeah. Building and, our own kingdom over, over the Lord's kingdom. Yeah, and that we for, forget about what God has called us to do as, a, as taking part in what he's doing. And the people lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. And we see uh, a couple of prophets come around. Um, I've affectionately heard them called the get-back-to-work prophets. <laughs> and that's uh, Zechariah and Haggai. And they basically come to tell the people that message— you were supposed to build the temple, but you've forgotten. Mm-hmm. Instead, you've moved over here. You're building something for yourself, so you need to get back to what God has called you to build. And that's when Ezra comes into the picture. Mm-hmm. Ezra comes back, and he's the priest coming back to rebuild the people. That's right. So they start building the temple, but you can be focused on building a building and something like God, but if the people's hearts right. aren't right, then you've got a problem. And Ezra comes back. And that's 
the focus of Ezra's message is to rebuild and to teach uh, the people. And there's chapter 7 starts to get into Ezra teaching and building the people. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great uh, recap. And and I think, too, uh, just to pause as, as far as our uh, kind of more modern implications, you mentioned something there that... Uh, yeah, they go back under Zerubbabel. There is a work they're given to do. There's a mandate. Uh, and yet they're distracted by something we, we would all argue it's not a bad thing to build your home. And I'm sure back then, your husband, you got a wife, maybe the Lord's giving you some children. You're going, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with us having a house. Put my family in a house, make sure they're secure, make sure they're safe, make sure they're in and of itself a good thing. And yet, uh, the pursuit of good things had gotten them off course from the one thing that they had been mandated and called to do in this rebuilding of the temple. And there's some truth in that too. And in, in, in uh, our, our new Testament, new covenant lives, even here in the church, what does Jesus command in Matthew 28 to make disciples commands it. It's a mandate. We can do many other good things that are fine and wonderful and we should, but if we're not engaged in that, then even those good things could be a Bible study. It, it could be your, you know, it could be a, you know, discussion group serving with a ministry, uh, church attendance, you know, whatever it is. That, uh, uh, but the fact of the matter is, the kind of tagline at Harvest is intentionally gospel-driven, you know, disciple making. Uh, you want to be fueled by the gospel to do the singular command that Christ calls us to, and let that prevent us from being distracted by even other good things along the way. And it's exactly what happened. It wasn't that they had to have a place for their families to live, so it wasn't that they were building it. It's that they had abandoned the mission that they were called to. So um, as we live on this earth, we're uh, fulfilling what God has called us to, which we see most clearly, as you mentioned, the Great Commission. Um, God has called us to, to live here for a season. So we treat it like it's a season and we've got to uh, live here in that nature. So the building of the house in the problem, it's the priority That's of right. it. It's what becomes ultimate. They put that above God. That's right. And you mentioned uh, uh, taking us through Ezra to chapter 7. Ezra, um, that's a great way of putting it, to, to rebuild the people. You cannot build God's people unless you feed God's people God's word. And... That's where it's my favorite verse in all of Ezra. That's my favorite verses for preaching. I still remember uh, being uh, when I was at Dallas Seminary years ago. It was 2006 to 2008. Uh, it was either in the chapel or, or one of my Old Testament uh, buildings. But Ezra 7.10 was etched into the wall at Dallas Seminary. For Ezra had set his heart to do what? Two things. Set us hard to do two things. Study the law of the Lord, or three things, to do it and teach his statutes. That is, if you want to talk about uh, pastoral ministry or just Christian living at its foundation, to study God's word, to obey God's word, and then after you're studying it and you're obeying it and you're living it out, teaching God's word. And if you're uh, going to try to rebuild a people, or even now build a people, the people of Harvest Church, the members of Harvest Church, uh, why does expositional preaching uh, a core value on the wall? It's because uh, 
you read verses like this and go, this is how God has prescribed uh, to build his people, to know his word, to obey his word, and to teach his word. Yeah, and if you're if you've made it this far in the podcast and you're still going through the gospel journey, you're walking through it with other people. That's right. In this verse, let it be encouragement to your faithfulness in this endeavor that the word of God accomplishes what the Lord sets it forth to do. And he had set it in his heart to the study. Uh, so it's in his heart. We can only do this empowered by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we experience it often by our own uh, sense of discipline and what some would even, I'm cautious with this word, but willpower, that we're, we, are, we are staying faithful to the Word of God, but we know we can only do it not by our power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's right. And by continually being disciplined to dig in the Word. So encourage the people you're investing in. Uh, the Word of God is their source. That's where they go to commune with God. So yes, we study God's Word, and there's a communion in that, but yet we know God and we hear from Him as He speaks to us in His Word, and He's speaking to us here real clearly in 710. Well, and it's like uh, you know, one of my mentors in ministry said years ago that to open up the Bible is to open yourself up to God, to hear Him speak, uh, uh, you know, to be... I wish we're in his presence. He's omnipresent. Spirit dwells within us. But there's this is his communication to us in its most objective form is God's word uh, passed down to us. And again, I, I, I agree with your uh, uh, kind words to those in these gospel journey groups. And and that is why we have the gospel journey centered around the Bible. It's not that other resources aren't good. They are. I read plenty of other books that are theological. They're biblical. They help shape and encourage me and inform my faith. The problem comes in when we only read other resources. We don't want to read, you know, a latest John Piper book or Tim Keller book or Tony Evans book, whatever it may be. Those can be super helpful, but those cannot be the main diet. Those are those are if you imagine going to, you know, wherever Central or Corky's or wherever you want to go get your favorite barbecue. You want an awesome rack of ribs. That's the Bible. And your mac and cheese and your greens and everything else, that's that's a little Tony Evans book or John Piper book. Those are good. They help the meal. They help complete that kind of process. But that's not the main course. Well, even as you think about people you're investing in, it, sometimes people feel like there's something missing. They're a Christian, but they aren't experiencing all that God has for them. And oftentimes it's because they're relationship to God ends up being very secondhand. I heard this sermon. Well, that's meant to bless you. That can encourage you. Uh, I've heard this, you know, read this book, but God wants us to come and draw near to him as individuals in prayer and in the word. And that's what we're encouraging people to. That's why I love these gospel journey questions where we're talking about what does the text say? And then the layered questions that go, what what is God calling you to do mm-hmm. with, right. with what he says? That's right. So Ezra and doing that, uh, building the people through God's word. Uh, towards the end of the book, before we get to, to Nehemiah, Steve, where, you know, if Ezra's building the temple, Nehemiah's coming to build the wall. And, and yet at the end of Ezra, here's what you see happens. If you're really teaching God's word, obeying it and teaching its statutes, it's going to confront sin. And it's going to call people to repentance. And we see a real-time example of that at the book of Ezra. He calls out, you know, God's word says this, Jewish people, we're not to marry people of another faith. We're not to intermarry because the history of the nation of Israel 
You see it even into their kings like Solomon. When we marry foreign women, we then also wind up marrying ourselves to their gods. And Ezra says, we're not doing that anymore. And you are going to repent and turn. And that's what we see here. He leads the people in repenting of their sins and turning towards faithfulness to God. Yeah, the, 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 so that list of people, their name is in Scripture forever as being people who uh, are marked by disobedience for God. We're all marked that way, but just they're marked in a particular way. And I think as you invest in people, especially as you invest in singles, um, oftentimes people can be quick to compromise or be tempted to compromise that base standard that's from from Genesis chapter 2 throughout. We see that God's people marry people who trust in God. So for the Christian, we marry somebody who has been converted by Jesus Christ as a new creation. So that's an important principle to teach now. Nehemiah takes place um, around 445 B.C. So uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra started about 530s. So we're getting about 90 years later, although Ezra has a couple parts. It has some breaks in it. In the middle of Ezra, the story of uh, Esther takes place. But uh, Nehemiah, I love Nehemiah chapter 1, and it's one of my favorite chapters that to teach. And part of the reason I love teaching it is because it speaks so deeply to, to me personally. And we see Ezra. The, the, main, the main point of chapter 1 is this huge prayer. So chapter 1, chapter one we go 4 through um, verse 4 through 11, and it's this prayer of this man named Nehemiah. And it's a, it's a magnificent prayer. It's a humble prayer, but it's a prayer about what he desires and what his desires are. And this is what I've heard is really at the heart of prayer is our heart lining up with God's heart. Yeah, not the other way around. Not the other way around. And that's what we see in this man. And the last verse, he says, I was the cupbearer of the king, which is a servant role, but it's like a high, high, high level servant role. This is a a very good position he has. And then in chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah, he's been praying, God, I want to go back and rebuild your city. I've heard reports that it's in ruins. That's right. And, and that he, grieves him. He, he weeps over something that happened well over 100 years ago. He's weeping about it and mourning it and is moved, and he prays to God. But I love that we see him planning. He's a great example of this, crying out to God. God, only you can do this. You've got to do this. But he, all on the way, he's going, how much wood do I need to build that wall? What supplies do I need? I need a decree from the king. He's figuring out how to do this while he's crying out to God. So it's this, this tension between like, God's going to do it, but we've got to be faithful and take action. Yeah, well, it's a... You know, it's kind of a grid of, of prayer and preparation. Uh, uh, you know, I, I say him back home that you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the thing about Nehemiah, though, that is most convicting to me is he is prayer first. Let's prepare. I am. I'm going to prepare. And, oh, three days in. You know what? I probably should pray about this. It's the exact opposite. Well, and he prays, and he prays this robust prayer in chapter 1, waits. It's four months later, 
And four months later, he's been praying for the right opportunity. And if he makes this request of the king, it could be death for him. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he waits, and there's an opportunity thrown his way. The king says, your face looks down today. And you were to come in the king's presence happy. That in and of itself is a a capital offense. Yeah. Yeah, So right there is a risk. And the king says that, and Nehemiah says, I prayed. And, it, you know, it just shows us some different examples of prayer. Because he didn't go into this long, robust prayer. He's just like, God, Help get me. up. Help <laughs> yeah, me. I'm on, uh, this is the opportunity. I think this opportunity your spirit's given me. I'm going to go through that door. And he speaks to the king. And the king, I mean, it's just one of those things that, like, his jaw had to drop. Oh, yeah. God, king grants him everything that he asked for. He says, can I take a paid vacation for several months to go rebuild the nation that used That's to be right. your enemies. By the way, give me a carte blanche pass that is no questions asked with anybody that I meet <laughs> along the way. You know, it is, and, and, and yeah, I wrestle with it. Nehemiah is most likely, it's a, it's a historical narrative. It's not written as a leadership manual in and of itself. But if I were to teach, if someone were to ask me to come teach a biblical seminar on leadership, this is the book I would go to. Oh, it's great. He, when he is talking to the people of Israel, you see there at the end of chapter 2, he uses these phrases, Come, let us go to Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer division. It's all us in we language. Right. He's a leader who... Um, is in the trenches with the people. That's right, which is you know uh, uh, a term that we use in leadership circles now is it's incarnational leadership. He's with them, just like Jesus came, incarnate himself to be with humanity. And Nehemiah is going to he's going to work alongside his people. And so even in these first few chapters, you see uh, uh, he prays, he prepares, and then the other, you know, uh, an indispensable characteristic of leadership is you got some courage. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, a coward does not go into the king's presence looking for this opportunity. He's got courage. I believe he's. I believe he has fear, but courage to overcome that That's fear. Right. Trusting God Spirit to over empowered courage. Yes, and it's it's a it's a beautiful thing. He goes to Jerusalem and he marches around the city, checks everything. He's always counting the cost and always figuring things out. But it's in deep faith, and that's what the Christian does. We, we have faith. We're trusting God to do it, but we're looking, going, God, how are you leading us to address this? How are you leading us to deal with this? And it's a, like you said, one of the reasons it's often used in leadership is he does a masterful job of leading people in the midst that's exactly of right. opposition. Well, and, well, you mentioned opposition. I mean, if I'm a you know, cupbearer to the king, I'm praying God obviously does a miraculous work, gets me everything that I could possibly need to go accomplish this. I'm not anticipating Nehemiah chapter four. I'm thinking, man, the God's in this. He's If God's in it, surely there won't be opposition. This is not going to be difficult. God has moved so miraculously to make this thing happen. And yet, if we think that we have missed one of the most consistent themes of the entire Old Testament— Abram, go to a land in which you do not know, a land flowing with milk. And it's a promised land. And you read a few bit uh, a bit later, and Abram got there, and there was a famine. It, 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 throughout the old, just because God calls you to something, equips you to something, and even supernaturally organizes every single circumstance to make that calling come about, 
that does not mean there will not be opposition and hardship in following the Lord. Exactly. And, and Nehemiah is going to encounter it. He starts off, he gets everybody involved. He gets the priest. He gets the business leaders. He gets the people that often would say, Nehemiah, we're not going to build a wall. And we, we, we sort of failed to mention this, but for a city in the ancient world, a wall was its glory. It was its protection. It was its defense. And if you didn't have a wall, people lived in fear that they might be taken. That's one of the, when we talk about the city of Nineveh, it was legendary for its massive wall that you could race three chariots across, uh, three chariots side by side across. So it had this huge wall. And they've got to build a wall uh, to protect the city. And in chapter four, as you mentioned, he starts to get ta- attacked from the outside. And these guys, Samballat and Tobiah, they come to him and they're mocking the wall. They're saying, you know, that wall's so feeble, a fox gets on, it's going to knock it down. So they start to verbally attack him and ridicule him. Um, They start to give threats that, hey, we're going to come attack at night. So Nehemiah, organize the people. We're going to, some of you are going to sleep, some of you are going to work. I mean, some of you are going to sleep, some of you are going to be on watch. That's right. And he does, he sets them up to, to continue to do this. So the work never stops in the midst of this. In fact, at one point, they're going to call Nehemiah and say, hey, we need you to come meet with us to have this discussion uh, about what's going on. And Nehemiah is focused on the task and will not be distracted. That's right. That's right. And so when we navigate that, you know, long story short, Steve, they build the wall. In 52 days. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, great leadership. But but the other thing that Nehemiah does that shows wonderful leadership towards the end of the book as we uh, move towards the end of this podcast and gospel journey, Steve, is, uh, you know, they finish that wall and they worship and they have feast and they confess sin and they remember their unfaithfulness. And they it's a great the great man of God leader that Nehemiah is, is they're not just building a wall. They're building a wall for a purpose. And he does not want the people to ever think that the great pinnacle or culmination of all of this was just to simply build a physical wall. This is attached to something bigger. The labor, the work that we are doing, uh, we cannot lose the perspective of why we're doing it. And, and, and what Nehemiah does is he then leads them into worship and holiness and feasts and confessions. Like, uh, it's not lost on him. The heart that we saw that he prayed for, that he cried out with in Nehemiah 1, that heart is echoed and seen towards the end of the book when worship is how uh, they respond to their construction project. Yeah, we see uh, a much older Ezra return and come back, and he begins to teach the people, again, the law of God, and it's one that we have to continually return to. Um, We have to continually return to God's Word, and as a Christian, the gospel is not something we hear once. Gospel not only saves us, it does, and it's glorious, but it gives us power for living, and we are tempted every day to live outside of the gospel, to live outside the reality that we are sinful people left to ourselves, our hearts, inclinations always towards sin, and even as Christians, our flesh pulled toward that, but we are victors over sin because of Christ. That's right. And, and that's a glorious reality of, of how we live, but we have to continually come back to it. And I love that in these books you see people continually come back to the truth of who God is. And, and yet I think Nehemiah, through real-time experience, uh, we certainly know this of our own lives, even pastorally, 
is working with people was still a mess. And even though they accomplished this great work together, it doesn't mean their private lives or their walk with God, uh, they were far from perfect. And I love how he hangs his hat, what he begs God for, how he ends the book is, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. Establish, he's not even going to reference the wall here, Steve. I cleanse them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Yeah. And that last verse, this, what Jamie just read, concludes the historical narrative of the Old Testament. Now, we've got several books after it. Uh, we've got the wisdom literature and the prophets, but they all feed into what's going on uh, there. This is the chronologically, uh, Nehemiah ends the sweep, and Malachi is the last of the prophets taking place uh, around this same time. And Malachi, the last book of your Old Testament, is very rich in anticipation of Messiah. That's right, the day of the Lord. Yes, we see that um, over and over again uh, mentioned in Malachi. And I love that it, you know, we often view New Testament, Old Testament, uh, as Christians, we believe it's all one book, one story of God. Um, and we end Malachi waiting for uh, waiting for Messiah. It says in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and their hearts of their children uh, to the, uh, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last thing we hear in the Old Testament is Elijah's going to come and he's going to come before the great day of the Lord. And Elijah, next thing we turn the page and we see Elijah come and we see John the Baptist, Elijah coming, and he's going to come right before the great day of the Lord, which is the day that Jesus Christ would come. And while that may confuse some people, what he's referencing is Jesus actually brings clarity to Jesus tells his own disciples that John the Baptist is this new promised Elijah who was to come. And Steve, as Malachi closes... Israel does not, at least historically reported, does not hear uh, from what we know uh, from a prophet like any of the ones we've just said or seen in the, in the Old Testament uh, for over 400 years. It's a, it's a time of silence until the silence is broken by John the Baptist, like you just said. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Yeah, and a lot happens in that silence period. That's a whole another lesson for another time, but you see the development of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essians, and you see uh, different nations. Rome's now in power, and you see the predominant language is now Greek. So over that 400 years, significant things happen. But when we see John the Baptist show up, he really ties us back to the Old Testament because he shows up and he's dressed funny, eating funny food. He is an Old Testament-style prophet. They would call him old school. Yeah, he's old school. He looks different. He goes out to the desert. He ministers right where Elijah did. That's right. And God is keeping his promises. So the Old Testament ends, and we look and we go, God is faithful. He's so, going to keep his promise. Well, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15 is the same one that Malachi promises in Malachi chapter 4. It, it, you know, the one, There's one that's coming. Uh, the new Elijah is going to point us to him. But the one is coming. 
And I think maybe fitting, just talking your gospel journey, that reality that, yes, that was the first coming of Christ, but he's coming again. And we, too, look forward to a day when Jesus is coming. And the reality of that future uh, is meant to then shape the faithfulness of our present. Steve, I enjoyed it. Thanks again for being here as we wrapped up this uh, Gospel Journey Path 10. 